What's up, freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat down with Matthew Mazinxius to do our quarterly update on the monetary base. Bitcoin in the top 10, number eight, coming up for India. Incredibly insightful episode, as always. It's been a few months. I'm not going to lie. It's been a few months since we read boosts. So I'm going to read the top four boosts from the last two TFTC rips. We're going to get back on it. I'm sorry. Um, I've been slacking. Uh, Rip 422 launching flex with Bitcoin talent code, no boost. It's probably because I haven't been reading them, freaks. I'm sorry. Uh, Rip 441 mini script and Bitcoin risk products with Rob Hamilton. Blockchain bug, 5,000 sats. Mini script sounds a bit scary. Hopefully the templates stop people from making huge mistakes. I agree. Templates are a good thing. Go check out that rip with Rob if you haven't listened to it yet. At Michael Matt Taluf, 500 sats. Miniscript is fascinating. And then at Paez, 500 sats. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for contributing to the show via podcasting 2.0. I can't speak. I'm sorry, freaks. Big rock. It was raining here. As you'll find out, there was a lot of lawn care going on during this episode. A little frazzled right now. Rip 440. Climate change is a bad excuse with Anas Elhaji. Blockchain bug, 3,000 sats and two clapping emojis. Thank you, blockchain bug. And at Paez, 500 sats. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, too, for boosting consistently. If you guys are listening via podcasting 2.0 apps, you're supporting the show. Thank you. Apps like Fountain, Podverse. It really means a lot that you guys are contributing sats directly to the show. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at River. River is the best exchange in the game. It's the most secure place to buy Bitcoin. And they have a new referral program. If you go to river.com slash TFTC, you set up an account and you buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, you're going to get $5 worth of free Bitcoin. River.com slash TFTC. If you buy $100, you are going to get $5 of free Bitcoin. On top of that, it's the most secure Bitcoin exchange because they don't rely on third parties. They built everything in-house. Their wallets... Um, their their lightning wallets, their infrastructure, their APIs. They build it all in-house. They also have zero, do- zero fee dollar cost averaging. So you set up DCA, you buy on this uh, once a week, once a month, once every two weeks. If you set that up, you're not going to pay any fees. Other platforms charge large fees and have giant spreads. Go with River and avoid that. And River also has a relationship management team based in the U.S., that you can call by phone. This is a big value add. Customer service is something that's lacking these days. River has pristine customer service. You can actually call them if you're an individual or a business. And again, it must be noted that all Bitcoin is held one-to-one in a multi-sig cold storage wallet that they built, uh, but they encourage self-custody. So River wants you to get in and get out into a wallet that you control. So go to river.com slash TFTC, set up an account today. Take advantage of that free Bitcoin on the table. This trip is also brought to you by good friends at Unchained. Unchained is here uh, to leverage Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to bring you financial services. You can buy Bitcoin on Unchained using their trading desk. Uh, They have their lending desk, which allows you to use Bitcoin as collateral to take out U.S. dollar loans. They have their IRA product, which they they just updated. Um, I believe last week, the onboarding flow for the IRA product is much simpler now. So if you have an IRA and you're looking to uh, transition some of those funds in your uh, traditional IRA into Bitcoin, Unchain makes that extremely easy. They have a white glove concierge team that'll walk you through the process and get you set up quickly. Uh, and the beauty of that IRA product, again, 
Unchained's building using Bitcoin's multi-native sig or native multi-sig properties. Uh, so you can actually hold your own keys in your IRA. It's a beautiful thing. So go to Unchained.com, tell them the TFTC sent you, and check out all that they have to offer. Last but not least, this was brought to you by Bitcoin Talent Co., uh, a recruiting firm built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. They just announced last week, if you listened to the previous episode, they have a new flex program. So if you're building a company out there uh, and you're recognizing that it's pretty pretty hard out there with where interest rates are and you're being hyper cognizant of your burn rate and whether or not you're going to bring on full-time employees, Bitcoin Talent Co. has launched Flex. So you can get access to talent on a contract basis or a per project basis. So you don't have to bring on a full-time employee and take on their salary uh, and the cost to come with all the benefits and options you may provide them. So if you're looking to wisely scale your business with burn rate in mind, go check out Bitcoin Talent Co's Flex product. They just launched it last week. This is a great way to continue building through the bear market without taking on uh, a lot of OPEX in the form of salaries. So go to bitcointalent.co slash flex to check this out and enjoy this rip with our good friend, Matthew Mazinchus. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. We're live. We're back for our monetary base quarterly update, which in recent updates, <laughs> we've glossed over the the monetary base and just dove into a bunch of charts and tangential discussions, which I'm sure will happen today. But, um, I'm sure of it, my friend. I'm sure of yeah. it. What's on your mind right now? Uh, not too much, you know. Uh, got a honey badger this week. Uh, you were there last year. You're not going to be there this year i presume no i have to get back to austin have a wedding have cool to, uh, tell Max i'm actually that we cannot make it i'm actually not going to make it uh this year either unfortunately but if any listeners are in europe and last minute want to go to a very high signal conference definitely do check it out it's a great one so coming yeah. up this weekend i think it's the most high signal conference in the world and riga is a beautiful city high praise know. High praise. Yeah. 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 It's a great one. So cool. Um, yeah. Got that coming up. And, uh, you know, I was just sending you some fun little text last night about uh, the Naira, you know, one of the early CBDC pilots and uh, not just pilots, but active uh, programs championing the CBDC. And, um, do you have the press release? I actually didn't pull it up. Do you have the press release? Yeah, I just gave it like the first, Logan first paragraph it of it. Yeah, we'll pull it up. But long story pretty, short. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Long story short, uh, yeah, E and I are future uncertain. After, I don't know what to say, it's the former central bank chief, Emma Philly, Alster. And basically, uh, they said, 
CBDC looks very uncertain. Uh, the former central banker is now in the custody of the state security services, also likely to be questioned on the funds used to deploy and push the adoption of the e-Naira from inception. So uh, quite funny. I mean, it wasn't so tragic, you know, about playing with people's lives and people's money. But uh, those, we, we've talked about this before. I mean, I'm sure you have heard the story, Marty. I'm not, I'm not an expert on Nigeria, but earlier this year, they really pushed it. Uh, they even tried to make other uh, Bitcoin crypto withdrawals illegal. Um, and it just failed miserably. There were protests. Uh, they massively cratered the physical stock of money, actually. And so that's what I wanted to show you. Um, yeah, so the story, story was they were trying to phase out cash, right? Or they didn't position it like they were phasing out cash. They positioned it like they were recycling notes or creating new notes that would then yeah. go into circulation. So the Nigerians had to turn in the notes that they had, the physical notes they had before a certain date. And then they turn all their money in and they yep. didn't have the new money on the back end. Cratered the money supply. And actually, I can show you the physical supply here. So uh, if you want to go back to that, Logan, where we were on my screen, um, pretty wild. Uh, so this is like a 60-year chart. The Naira started in the 70s, actually, uh, but they must have done a little bit of a revised money supply. I'm not sure what they had before in the 60s, but I have that. Uh, that sort of matched up to it. But regardless, this is the money supply. And before this year, they were at about 3.2 trillion Naira. Uh, this is actually one of the biggest currencies in Africa. Let's take off the growth rates. There you see it. So at the start of, uh, in December, about 3 trillion. It was going down a little bit. And it just cratered it to by February, it was 980 billion Naira. And then didn't work out so well already back up to 2.6 trillion naira i don't actually have the supply <clears throat> i was looking for it if anybody sees it please do send me a link uh I, I haven't actually seen a transparent supply of the cbdc itself but this was the physical stock and it's very eerily similar to india which i will refresh the uh the listeners on and the viewers if you're watching this uh in a second which that what they did in 2016, but basically, yeah, try to roll this out. Not very transparent, causing a lot of problems in India. There were even deaths. I'm not sure if there were deaths here. I'm sure there were lines. I'm sure there were issues, but there were definitely protests in the street, which I read about. And uh, yeah, look, the famous CBDC uh, promise it's not delivering, and they're already back up. And I'll put a trailing 12 month percentile change here. So at the worst of it, they were down 70 percent year on year. All right, in early early this year, February 2023. And now uh, they're only down 20%. Uh, but as you can see, it's rising back up. And the compound growth rate, just in case you're curious, over the lifetime of the Naira is 17%. 17% year-on-year growth. So this is what I've been saying for years. And what I'll continue to say, and you know, we got the CBDC tracker coming out, but everybody wants to talk about CBDC. No one is acknowledging the blunt reality of billions of people's needs for CBPC, central bank, physical currency, very basic thing. Uh, of course, even before central banks, you had private banks that would issue notes 
Um, but we haven't had that, you know, worldwide for a hundred years. Nonetheless, billions of people need physical cash. And I think it's a pretty illustrative example of just how difficult this is to actually roll out these CBDC programs. Do you think that need for the physical for cash is a phenomena that's isolated to emerging markets? No, I know that it's not. I mean, based on the supply, we I'll, I'll pull up another one there shortly, but to explain it, you know, um, there's only two countries in the world that I've seen that have really, uh, even though you think, and I know, like, I'm sure, you know, if you're going to go out to dinner tonight or whatever, like you're going to pay with credit card or maybe lightning somewhere, but you're probably going to pay with credit card. You're not going to use physical cash, most likely. Uh, I understand in the West, in Europe, in America, we typically can't see the cash. We don't think that the cash is around, but it still is. Uh, it's just a function of, I'd say, probably lower income velocity transactions, you know, lower income uh, uh, jobs and payments and, and purchases. But it is, there's only two countries that have literally, that I've seen have tried to physically, besides what we just saw here with Nigeria, which again, they failed, uh, really tried to stagnate the physical currency stock. And those countries are Norway and Sweden. And even there, it's kind of like they were trying to pull it down and it's just kind of, it's like it's almost dip, it's almost floating back up right now. It's kind of flat. Uh, but it's a worldwide thing that they are, that cash is still being printed. I have a number for that that I've blended as well. A weighted average, it's about 10.5% per year. 10.5% per year is the rate of growth of physical cash. And by the way, the rate of growth of like people on the planet is 1.5% per year. So that's a... A ratio of seven. Uh, the supply, <laughs> the supply of physical, like it's the most basic form of money, right? We don't need to pontificate about bank reserves or deposits or CBDCs. Like, still, the most basic form of money is physical cash, and the supply comes out seven times faster than the demand. I mean, how how could a Yale or Harvard economist talk around that and try to make it? seem like it was a good thing for the economy. I just, I just don't know. It's obvious you're going to have price inflation with such, you know, with such mechanics of the money supply. Yeah. Yeah. Debasing the physical stock of cash pretty rapidly. 10 point, was it 10.5% yep. annually? 10 and a half, about 10 and a half, 10 and a half percent per year. That's the number. Yeah. And the reason I asked that question is because, uh, it popped up last week. I saw Peter St. Ange was covering it, but it seems like the San Francisco Fed has a few job postings for people to work on CBDCs within the Federal Reserve System, and which begs the question, like if these pilot programs, most notably in Nigeria, are failing pretty miserably, like why would the Fed even go down this route if they have this evidence in front of them that, that there's really not demand for it people want the physical cash are they seeing something are they trying to make fetch a thing um just wondering and then it very much sort of counteracts a lot of the public statements that jerome powell has made in regards to cbdc's which gets to another point which is like uh the different 
Fed banks, whether it be San Francisco, Dallas, Minneapolis, they seem to have pretty, um, pretty objective takes uh, individually. Where I, I think the Dallas Fed came out this week and said we have to stop raising rates. It's yeah. really going to affect the the capital formation of of industries that that we need to deliver goods to market. Um, so I wonder: is the San Francisco Fed just this? A Federal Reserve Bank with a particular leaning that's trying to make this thing happen, even though the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, has publicly stated that he doesn't see the need for a CBDC where it actually right. functions. I don't have a direct answer to that, but I mean, they're obviously going to have to look at these use cases. I mean, Nigeria is pretty much, after South Africa, it's the richest country in Africa. And if you can't get them to do it, uh, you know, what are your chances of getting? a less developed country in Africa or South America or wherever, even getting on these CBDCs and then like, okay, well, we'll do it here. And I have said, uh, I mean, this is my contention, although I've talked to people in these countries and they don't think it's going to happen either. I, like I just said, if there were two countries that would do it, I think it's Norway and Sweden that they, they have, they're small enough, you know, their environment, they're, they're want to be environmentally friendly enough. They're, they're, they have the wherewithal, they're rich enough, they have the wherewithal to push it out and, and, and cover the cost of doing so, you know, kind of socialist in some endeavors, right? So I, I, it seems to make sense to me that they're the ones that could do it, like, like actually make it work. But um, I have talked to people in those countries as well, and they don't, they don't see that happening necessarily. I mean, they think that you know, like an argument is like, well, you know, maybe your bank will lock you out. Maybe if you're a lower income, you just need to have access to some instrument where you can pay. And a CBDC being based money, it's something that should theoretically, like only the Fed or only the central bank, right, could turn it off. Uh, and they will, by the way, once they run, they will turn off transactions that they don't agree with. But, you know, the idea is that, you know, you could even get around the political problems of bank accounts, which is funny because you could solve that problem by just loosening regulation in an instant, <laughs> but they're, they're not going to do that as we know. So it's funny that that would even be an excuse for it. But even if that was an excuse, people that I've talked to in Norway and Sweden are saying that's not a good excuse because, you know, by law banks have to keep accounts open for individuals and they don't have apparently those problems like they've been having in the UK right now. Although I've had problems with Swedish banks here in the Baltics, but uh, regardless, I think that this is a good example of the problems that are really coming. And, you know, I was reading that article, it kind of, I don't, I don't know the, the, the political leanings of that publication, but it seemed like a little bit statist. And they were saying, well, you know, it's not the end. It's probably just going to be going back to the drawing board, understanding the value proposition, why people will need it, so on and so forth. But I mean, for, for the fact for them to even publish an article like that, which said it, you know, its future may be limited or moved to the back burner was something that they said. I think that's just extremely illuminating about what the real use case, value proposition, cost rollout of these things is. And I think one more to close on this one. Uh, let me just roll the other tab, Logan. This is India now. 
uh, I've shown this maybe on your show before. I've done videos on this. Just this had nothing to do with the CBDC, but I think this is illuminating. They had the 500 and uh, let's take off the rates, the 500 and 1000 Mahatma Gandhi notes that they wanted to get out of circulation. Uh, they said it's in the name of, you know, digital uh, improvements and having more digital payments and everything. And so they tried this at the end of 2016. You see here about 17.7 trillion rupees of physical cash, 17.8. And then it was cratered. Same thing in a matter of months, uh, almost in half, 9.3 trillion by December 2016, 9.3 trillion rupees. And literally by the next, let's look at the percentages now, already by December 2017, they'd increased the money supply <laughs> 80, 80% year on year to get back to where they started a year prior. And now you're like, uh, th yeah, three times, no, double, you're double roughly where they were in 2016. In 2023, you have 336 trillion rupees of physical cash and the all-time growth rate of the rupee for the data that i have which is quite limited actually only 20 years 12.9 percent compounded so a little bit better than the naira but yeah i mean i think it's just you know even that, of course this was not a cbdc case but it's illuminating to, to see exactly what they almost the exact same case very swift rollout declaring illegal uh, turn your bills in. And in India, people actually died of exhaustion and big, waiting big in line at the ATMs, yep. right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a big, it was a big deal. Um, so what's the point of all this? Like what is, how, how much longer can they go on with these games? Well, in both directions, right? Like I think they're, so that's, I want to make two points here. One that builds on, what we've been discussing and bringing in another sort of twist to the story. But yeah, I th like what are these countries finding out? Like, is it, you, you just can't rip physical supply of money off the market abruptly. Like, are they going to go back to the drawing board and try and do it in more methodical fashion moving forward? Um, but looking at the growth rate of those charts, it seems like the way these economies are running, they need more physical cash to be yeah. circulating to, to prop up their economies. And then the other thing too, I'm not sure if you saw this, but the BIS came out with a blueprint for the CBDC earlier this summer. Um, and I read it. And when you dive into the details of how they, sorry, we got some weed whacking in the background of how yeah, they, uh, nice effect of, how, of how they um, plan to implement it. Like they're technically not competent. They're they're talking like if we think Ethereum's complex and completely centralized and going to collapse under its own weight in the future, like the, the BIS blueprint is is laughable in terms of the implementation of how they think they're going to do this. Yeah. Yep. And uh, you know that physical cash constant need to grow, which as I said, globally, I got a number for you. That's ten point ten point five percent. Uh, I recall even part of the narrative in 2019 when we had the, the repo spike and they were finally theoretically more normalizing their balance sheet. They hadn't, the Fed had not increased the balance sheet since 2014 and it was even decreasing by you know late 2019. Of course, this was before all the madness of 2020. But I remember part of the discussion in 2019 after the repo spike was well, you know, we might need to increase a little bit more. And plus we're running on the, you know, we're 
we're running into this lower bound barrier of physical cash, which needs to grow. I remember people saying that on Bloomberg, you know, of course, was it a policy point or whatever, but you know, they're aware of it. I mean, obviously they're aware of it. They never talk about it. I think it's just the funniest thing that the central bank, the institution in control of the money, you know, yes, they publish these physical stocks. I get them from their websites, but uh, it's such a small component of the discussion. And, you know, it was nine, nine trillion bucks of them around $9 trillion. It's $9 trillion equivalent market which is massive, right? When I say 9 trillion, 2.2 or something is actual dollars, 2.3 maybe. It's actual, you know, Benjamins, Hundies and and all those things, like most of them are in Europe or outside of the US. But, uh, you know, the rest, 7 trillion is euros, yen, yuan, uh, nairas, rupees uh, floating around. So it's, it's a massive market. They ignore it. They don't talk about it. All of a sudden we're going to turn this $9 trillion, you know, ancient market. It's a, you know, it's a thousand year old technology, physical cash. We're, we're just going to turn this over the next few years into a, this thing called a CBDC, which we take inspiration from Bitcoin, but we're going to be better than Bitcoin. It's, it's, it's laughable to its core. So do you think it's literally impossible for them to implement it due to the mechanics of this physical stock? Well, I, I wouldn't say that. And like I said, I, I, I personally think you're going to see it from Norway and Sweden. Uh, I think that, that they have the wherewithal. But these sorts of stories encourage me. And, uh, you know, we'll track it. We're doing the CBDC tracker with the Human Rights Foundation. We'll be launching that by the end of this year. But <sighs> they've tried dumber things, which we can talk about for the rest of this show. They've certainly tried dumber things. This guy's literally right next to me, so let's jump into some of the dumber <laughs> things. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll just quickly go through a couple of these. Um, Logan, if you want to go to the next one here, yeah. So we've got the top five currencies highlighted. Uh, you know, if you've been following us with these quarterly updates for for a few years now, this is going to look familiar, but uh, we can build them back out, right? So the rest of the world, it's about 18% of it is here. That means 45 different currencies, including the two we just discussed, the Indian rupee, which is the one of the next biggest after the Swiss franc, uh, one of the next biggest in the world. And the Naira, all in this bucket here, okay, which uh, totals about $4.8 trillion equivalent. Uh, then you got the pound sterling, which is less than 5%, 1.23 trillion Japanese yen. And when I, the next four of the big four, Japanese yen, Chinese yuan, European euro, US dollar. Now, uh, this is the monetary base. Okay. So this includes that 9 trillion of physical currency I mentioned. And it also includes about, at the moment, uh, $18 trillion dollars worth or so of bank reserves, which is basically the the most core fundamental asset that a bank can hold in a banking system. It's it's their account with the Federal Reserve. So those two things together, the bank reserves and the physical cash make up the monetary base. And the total is 27.2 trillion, a little bit under 27.2 trillion dollar equivalent. And again, when I say that number, I, you know, I have to describe this with some unit of comparison, right? So that's the dollar, but 
you really need to think that these are different currencies that are making up this this group. This is the core of the system. This is why we compare it to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the core of its own system. It's not a Coinbase account. It's not a Kraken account. Uh, those institutions can hold Bitcoin, but they are not. They are not the the actual you know UTXO. So that's why you know, we also call this outside money. Okay, so central bank money is outside of the it. You know, it definitely is connected to and uh, highly corrupt in some ways with the current financial system and they make the rules for the financial system. But at the end of the day, they're the, the monopoly that sits outside of the financial system. So it's called outside money. So that's why Bitcoin is also outside money. Gold and silver as well are analogous to this in history. They are also outside money. So this is the number that would really compare to Bitcoin. Uh, we can talk valuations in a second, but uh, $27.2 trillion. Notice that is down from the COVID peak. Now, you know, not as it was going steep down uh, by the end of 2022. Then they raised it a little bit this year. You see, it went down to like 20, uh, yeah, it was 26 and a half trillion by the end of last year, about a year ago. Uh, and then they raised it back up to 28. Now it's down again to 27.2 trillion, but it was 30 trillion, 30 and a half trillion uh, at the end of 2021. That was the whole COVID stimulus. And remember when I started doing these, monetary base exhibits and working on this research, it was 20 trillion. Okay. So lots happened in the last three, four years. We've gone from a $20 trillion global monetary base up to a $30 trillion one. And now we're down 3 trillion to 27.2 trillion. And this actual reduction in the monetary base. And as I've told you, it's, it's only the bank reserves that are reducing, right? Cause physical cash is generally growing in every country. So it's this, this, this actual reduction in the bank reserve volume or value uh, in banks' deposits, that is actually the thing that causes these interest rate spikes. So this is the transmission mechanism, as they call it. They don't just, they have targets, of course, but they can't just like put into a computer, we want interest rates to be this. They have to do something. And how they do that thing is that they remove money from the system uh, credit becomes more scarce, interest rates rise. That's basically how it works. So this this is this is what this is the core of the global system that you're looking at here. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good it's a good primer for anybody that's interested to learn a little bit more about money because uh, you know they don't teach you the stuff in IMF uh, briefs or BIS publications. They just no one no one seems to want to compile this stuff on a global basis. Is the guy still weed whacking? No, he's gone. The rain's coming now, but we'll be good. Um, More soothing. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like in building on the CBDC conversation, the physical cash, I mean, it seems like all these central banks are essentially, their backs are pressed against the wall and they have no other option but to print more over the long term, medium to long term. Like that reduction... From the 2020 peak, I mean, it's still up 35% from when you started doing these reports. When it was at 20 trillion? I guess it's been reduced a little bit. And is that recent bump because of the BF, BTFP um, facility? Uh, not really. No. Uh, the overall balance sheet has fallen uh, for the Federal Reserve from the 9 trillion peak, uh, you know, like a year, more than a year ago. Um, it's the facility is more of a guarantee. It's not enacted yet. You know, we'll see if more crises happen. Um, 
but it's it's not necessarily from that. Uh, but the yeah, that's all I'll say with that. It's it's just not. I I, I haven't globally. I haven't actually uh, pinpointed which one is more. It might be Europe. I actually, see Europe looks a little bit high compared to the rest. That's kind of keeping it a little bit. It looks a little bit more stable there if you just look at the euro there. But I'm not sure uh, of the of the bump that happened in the in the very last year. But the U.S. themselves, even with the early banking sort of crises that we had at the start of this year, has not not exploded the balance sheet yet. Uh, if they do, then we know that you know it's more money printing and Bitcoin's gonna continue to go up. But even this is another thing I can put the next chart actually up, uh, Logan. Um, even if they do continue, you know, Powell just gave another speech, you know, they have their Jackson Hole thing and trying to put a happy spin on this more pain that's going to be happening to so many banks and financial institutions, balance sheets. Overall, they're still, they're still going to keep printing at the end of the day. I mean, at some point they're going to go back. So this is an interesting one. This is a trailing 12 month change. It's the same chart. I just, you know, one green shaded area. You can see the massive bump here. Okay, so there have been three massive bumps in money printing before COVID uh, on a trailing 12-month basis. Okay, so COVID on a trailing 12-month basis by February 2021 went up 38.5%, okay, the, the, the global monetary base. This happened three times before. Twice, you know, during the GFC years, 2009 and 2011, which, you know, more or less people can understand. And once actually during Y2K. Uh, we've probably talked about that, Marty. That's kind of a famous thing. People were literally freaking out, taking cash out, Y2K bug, everything. Uh, and that was a 32.9% peak. So those were really the only peaks, uh, major, major peaks. And you see there in 2019, they really tried to get it down. There. Like the only time other than just recently when it, when it went negative, when they tried to, as they say, normalize or decrease all of this stimulus, all this money printing they've done in the past happened at the end of 2019. And it happened this year, basically all of this year. So January, February, March, you'd see on the tooltip there, annualized run rate, negative, negative. And it's just now, as of May, let's zoom in and catch it. And negative again between May and June, but it's very close. It's very close to zero. It's very close to flat at the moment, year on year. But you can see, obviously, the the big decline, uh, you know, that was last year seems to be over. But you never know. Maybe they can, they can try to do it again and really, you know, prick inflation and all that stuff, but uh, price inflation. But again, this is, these are things that I'm not even actually interested about in the, in the short run, uh, as I'm sure you're not either. It's, it's more just a story about what they typically do. And for what they typically do, that's this line. Compound growth rate, that's the number in red that they're always hovering around. Just like I showed you with the physical cash, there are different numbers. And for the worldwide monetary base, that number is 13%, which means 1% a month. Because right? you compound 1% a month, it's not just 12%, it's over 12, it's closer to 13%. Shows you the you know the power of compounding, and that's uh, that's what's happening to your money uh, at the core of the system. At the end of the day, thirteen percent. That's what it's been like 
since the fall of Bretton Woods, since the end of the, uh, since the Nixon shock, the last 50 plus years. So that's, that's the number I think to think about. And what's the doubling rate for 13% compound growth rate? Sub six years. (laughs) That's insane. Uh, Well, I've been thinking about you in recent weeks too, like going back to our last conversation where you dove into the balance sheets of um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm. I had John Titus on from Best Evidence. who's done some really good research and he essentially is honed in on the FHLB loan exposure that the banks have. Um, and he's pinpointing that as an indicator of stress. Like if you are a bank with uh, a crazy assets to FHLB loan exposure, like mm. you're likely to go down um, as, as time moves forward. I think Charles Schwab has something like 130% exposure um their fhlb exposure is 130 percent of the the uh equity they have in their company the assets they hold on their balance sheet um that's like the federal home uh lending bureau i believe and is that uh, and i'm not i wasn't too familiar with them until i uh spoke with john but just building on our conversation from last time where we dove into Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Like, I wonder mm. if that's connected to that as well. Did you ask him about how insane those debt balances are just overhanging on the economy? No, I, I didn't. Um, I didn't connect the two dots while we were having the conversation. It wasn't until yeah. after where I began to think about it. Yeah, no, but I mean, there's just, yeah, serious issues that are still hanging over these companies and big banks balance sheets and you know, COVID didn't help it. Okay. COVID made everything worse. Uh, the response, the knee jerk response is typically what they do, right? They say people are in pain. We need to print money and help them and give them stimulus and all the rest. And it's just, it's like the same story that governments do basically from time immemorial. So I, I can't, I can't really, uh, yeah, I'm not a trader. I, I imagine there are way, more interesting ways to trade uh, some of these charts and some of these some of this news. If you really have your hand on the pulse and want to be in front of the screen, you know, twenty four seven or whatever. But um, at the end of the day, I think it's just it's great for Bitcoin. I mean, if we look at this chart again, you can put it up, Logan. Um, it's not the the change in the trailing twelve month rate is not correlated to Bitcoin's increase in price, right? So. Remember, look at the dotted line uh, in 2017. Well, let's start with 2013, right? So that was kind of like one of the first big booms, went over a thousand bucks for the first time, right? In the end of 2013, the monetary base was tr- trucking out right about the typical average, the, the all-time compound rate, 13, 14% per year. So look at the 2017 cycle, same thing, 13, 14% per year. And then they tried to, to slow everything down because of course, all the other markets were hot then as well. Uh, and then COVID, a lot of markets boomed, a lot of meme stocks, so did Bitcoin. That was an extreme bump, right? We're up to 40% year on year increase of the monetary base. But even, you know, even here when it was, I'm looking at 
2019, I'm highlighting the 2019, which is a relatively flat year on year increase of the monetary base, really when they're trying to normalize when they had the repo spike and all that stuff and the season of the repo market in the end of uh, uh, 2019. Even during that period, you know, there were little mini booms in the Bitcoin price. Like it's not, it's just not like uh, it's necessarily correlated in my opinion. Yeah, you can say that, you know, 2018, 2019, 2018, of course, definitely is a down year. And the, and that trailing 12-month rate was going down. And then in 2022, I guess we can say it was a down year. And yes, this this rate was going down as well. But how much that's going to relate to Bitcoin in the future, you know, I'm not, I, I, I just can't, I can't say with that, but I, I could definitely, we can look at the, some Bitcoin uh, trend lines, which I have as well. Those are the fun ones. Uh, you know, we just know that we're generally increasing there on a power curve uh, trajectory that's much better. Uh, you know, at preserving your purchasing power. So, so again, don't want to sound like just a extreme buy at any price sort of hodler, but I don't, I don't necessarily see any of these big swings as being like super good or super bad for for bitcoin yeah i mean an external to where bitcoin fits into this conversation just looking at this chart it looks like we're going to need some sort of mean reversion at some point mm-hmm. <laughs> soon yeah. like where where it's sitting and trending upward a little bit yeah, yeah and then you think about like the posturing from the government here in the united states really beginning to grease the wheels for more lockdowns um, or a climate crisis that could bring about a new form of lockdowns. It seems like they're beginning to look for an excuse to turn the money printers back on uh, at some point this fall or later this winter. Yeah. And if they do, you see the mean reversion that happened with COVID. I mean, if it's as bad as that one, uh, you're just going to blow right through the main <laughs> and, go, and go the other way. So from that side, yeah. Uh, I guess that's definitely, definitely good for Bitcoin. But um, as we know, there are a lot of other spillover factors that happen from controlling the money supply, these planning boards that think they can control, you know, all the prices and everybody's uh, actions in the entire economy, you know, a planning board of just a, a dozen people or so. It's it's just insane. It's uh, it's an insane way to do things. Yeah. and And then it's really unnerving to an extent because i'm sure you've seen it but like in recent weeks last month or two the amount of videos that have been popping up on social media of people experiencing in extreme amounts of stress due to the inflation they're seeing in their everyday lives whether it be here in the united states or more particularly pronounced up in canada mm. like it just paints a really scary picture if all of these insane moves that the Fed has made over the last couple of years to get rates up to tame inflation. Um, it brought it down to 3.2%, but if you look at core inflation, it's still above 4.7 pretty consistently, I believe. And then, as we all know, those metrics are completely bunk on their face. Um, yep. Inflation's much higher than it's being reported. And if we get to a situation where something happens in the banking sector, who knows what happens, probably happened in the banking sector and they're forced to turn the money printers back on. Like 
again, it's a bit unnerving because it, it yep. does not seem to me at least that they've uh, properly tamed inflation. It may show up in the CPI that they made a lot of progress, but if you anecdotally looking around, it doesn't seem like any material progress has been made. Right. And again, that's where I always fall back to this, like look at the all time trend line, right? I mean, that mean reversion may happen. It may not happen for another six months or so, but you know, if the GFC was any indication after the fat years of the early 2000s or uh, obviously COVID, you know, you can just see that mean reversion is never just, especially in recent years, it's it's rarely kind of hugging that mean. It just flies right through it. And that's why you just got to think about, I mean, what is it going to do when the, when the base money of the world increases at a rate of 13% per year, or I just looked it up, by the way, uh, it's 5.7 year doubling time. So a little bit more than every five years and six months, uh, the money supply has doubled. The base money supply. I mean, that is going to affect the rest of the economy and you have to prepare for it. You have to prepare for it. Yeah. Yeah. Get some Bitcoin uh, freaks. Yeah. You want to look at a Bitcoin chart? Yeah. Let's look at the Bitcoin chart. Cause I was looking, actually looking at the rainbow chart earlier today. Yeah. So this is very similar to the rainbow chart. They probably, whoever is, I don't know, as many people that create rainbow charts, but it's some sort of a trend line like this. It's called a power trend line. It's four basic trend lines. Just to remind the listener viewer, uh, we could do a linear trend line, which is like a flat trend line straight through. Uh, we could do an exponential trend line, which would be also straight on log scale. This is on log scale. So it would also be a straight line on log scale. Uh, there's also a logarithmic, which is a bit steeper than this. And there's power. Power curve is kind of a blend of, of those. It's a, it's, it's a sh more shallow on a log scale type of a curve, uh, but it's, uh, it does decay a little bit. The rate of growth is faster at the beginning on log scale, and it does decay kind of like a logarithmic, but a little bit more shallow. Uh, so, you know, the beauty of these very simple charts, unlike other, you know, more hyped charts, which don't take into account demand and other things. <laughs> uh, this is a very simple one variable, uh, model. It's uh, time is the independent variable. Price is the uh, price is the dependent variable, and you just calculate your coefficients. You can run this trend line, and then from there, once you have the trend line, you can do these bands as I have them. These red and blue bands. And so we can zoom in here, and you can really start to see more interesting things. So these bands, as you see there, I have the two sigma band and the one sigma band. Basically, everything between the blue bands. It's a one sigma move. What does that mean? That means that anything between those blue bands is basically a two thirds of the time event. It's a one sigma event. It means it happens uh, two thirds of the time. And anything between the red bands is a uh, two sigma event or a 95 percentile event. It means 95% of the time the data is going to be between those bands. But if we ever get outside of those bands or close to the edge of those bands, that's where it's an interesting phenomenon. That's where it's an interesting move. So you see here in 2017, we got to, up to 20K. It's very close to a two sigma move, not quite based on this trend line. Uh, it was a two sigma move. And you see 
after the FTX debacle, the final nail in the coffin of all the nonsense of 2022, uh, we 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 bumped along a two sigma move to the downside. Okay, so when we when we went uh, pretty much right after FTX filed for bankruptcy, we fell down to fifteen sixteen thousand there for a few months. End of uh, 2022, start of 2023, as a two sigma move to the downside. So we've we've pulled back up from there. We're around a one sigma move now. Okay, uh, you know, getting outside of a one sigma move, I should say. Uh, and we actually just did with this fallback from thirty thousand. I know we had a little bit of a bump today, up to twenty seven or so. I'm not looking at the price right now, but this is this is only from a couple of days ago. It doesn't matter. It's not going to affect the all time trend. But but that's where we are. And then the fun thing with this is you can actually use this to predict out. And this 95% R squared model that I have by December 31st, 2030 takes you to about $600,000 per Bitcoin. So it's a nice thing to think about. And again, uh, you know, this, these are statistical models. I'm not doing anything crazy. It's very basic stuff at the end of the day, uh, maybe compiling it in an interesting way, but this is like this is n no fancy math here. It's nothing to do with the Bitcoin emission schedule or anything. It's simply based on the price. And uh, yeah, if you have any bets or something, we can look at we can look at how the bands shape out. These guys are really going at it right now. <laughs> okay, let me. Uh... Let me switch over to the next one. I, I, you, you froze a little bit too. I thought I completely lost you, but I got you. Okay, this one as well. This is a good. Uh, this is a good chart to look at because it can show us how good or strong of a black trend line this chart was. Right, black trend lines in the middle, roughly in the middle. Right, that's the actual trend line. As I said, if prices continues to fall below this line, this trend line will fall. If it rises up. The trend line will rise. So it, it the, the trend line moves every day. It's not like it's a fixed thing. I'm trying to predict the future or anything. It does move. But we can still ask ourselves, how strong is this black line? For that, we can look at this chart. I've showed you this before, Marty. We have different years of trend lines where I just stop them based on that year's data and then move forward. So let's take off some years here and just look at 2010. This is like the best trend line ever be great to get back on this one but you know as you see the early years the early uh the early the first year basically where there's real pricing action of bitcoin very thin pricing action i started from bitcoin pizza day so it's not even the full year but you're just you know you have this slash dot article you have uh, a lot of things that are exciting and bitcoins you know going over a dollar going over to a few bucks uh maybe not a few bucks by the end of 2010 yeah still still in the 20 30 cents range but anyway quick quick uh, escalation from nothing. If you just look at this year's data, do the same calculation and only do a trend line from there, you get this trend line, which is monster. <laughs> so if you take it to today, the trend line, you're not reading this wrong, predicts that Bitcoin's price will be $1.3 billion per Bitcoin. $1.3 billion. It's a great trend line to be on, but unfortunately, Bitcoin lost the trend, which is okay. It, you know, We revise our trend lines with this stuff. And by 2030, actually, it's like $128 billion. It'd be a great trend line. We're off that. All right? Obviously, the, the, the way that the price and the market has worked, it's pulled it down. So we're off this trend line. 
2011, 12, 13, I don't have those, but know that they're somewhere between this blue line and the black line. But here's the interesting thing. From 2016, I have all of the different trend lines as we've gone through. So I'm just going to draw them all right now. Okay. See if you can spot them. 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022. You probably can't even see them because they're all stacked up. Let's take a look at the 2010 line. They're all stacked up on the black trend line, which is a good sign. This is even better. I've done this analysis on my YouTube channel of like gold. This is even better than gold would look from 2011. You know, the 2011 and being very, very favorable with gold, like from 2011 back to, um, back to not even like through the 80s, but only like through the 90s with like the bottom when gold was at $200 an ounce, then went to $1,200 an ounce. That's, you know, the 2012 trend line would have taken gold to $30,000 an ounce, something like that. But all the other trend lines from then on have gold like down to $5,000 an ounce, $6,000 an ounce. So gold has even more extreme swings uh, than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is very, uh, and, and, and they're, they're spread out, by the way. The point is that they're spread out. But this is pretty interesting from Bitcoin's 2016 trend line, which is the lowest, in fact. We, we're not lower than that. Zoom in a little bit even more if you can see it. Uh, 2016, it's in red. You know, as of August 28th, the the all-time trend should be $56,000 per Bitcoin. 2016's trend line is $55,700 per Bitcoin, $800 per Bitcoin. That's a little bit lower than the current trend. But all the other ones are a little bit higher and close. So again, it's just a, it's a nice example of the model, which shows that it's pretty consistent. The trend line is pretty good for the last, you know, seven years. And uh, yeah, we're, we're below it. We're pulling it down. We might make an all-time low. We just, 2020 was also a low trend line. You see it's $57,940. We just, I had to change the color because we, we just went below that, that one. So that's a, not, that's, that's a blue one now because it's above our current trend line. So there's only one year, which is below. But even with one year, it's quite interesting. It shows that this Bitcoin trend line goes up, goes down. It doesn't just go down all the time. And uh, yeah, we might, we might make a new low on that trend line with this cycle. Uh, nobody knows. But um, if, we, if we don't, that'll be even cooler because then we'll will have not put in that bottom of 2016 on the trend, you know, on the trend line. And, and as long as that Bitcoin price keeps trending up and starts to get above that trend line, it will pull the trend line back up the all time trend line. So it's a lot of discussions about trend lines there, uh, especially if you're listening to this dear listener and not watching. But the point is that this, uh, this nice power regression trend line, which is, which I have a lot of videos on this on YouTube, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty solid, it's a pretty solid, I think, representation of where Bitcoin's price has been over the last seven years. It's funny because you mentioned gold sort of went off its historical trend line in 2011, 2012. That was right when like GLD dropped, right? That's when GLD yeah. launched was around then. Gold, it was, and it get, was getting up to $2,000 an ounce uh, at the time. That was like an all-time high for gold, but then, you know, it went into a 10-year bear uh, from there. So, so they're kind of, the point is they're kind of all over the place. If you do the same analysis with gold, whereas with Bitcoin, yeah, they all are all over the place in the early 
2010s, but we were just, I mean, that's, that's a monetary system just getting started. Like give it a couple of years. Uh, you know, am I saying that they're all years after this are going to be, you know, stamped right around this trend line? No, but it's pretty interesting that they have been since 2016. And yeah, no, that's the point I'm trying to bring up is like with all the news around the ETFs that may or may not be coming to market, does that sort of throw an interesting externality in the mix that could that could push up this all-time power trend? Yeah, I think a lot of people are hoping that it does. And I saw there was some good news for GBTC as well. But I'm not too deep in that saga. It seems like a complete mess. But regardless, if BlackRock gets proved, that's, that's obviously a huge deal for institutional money coming in. Yeah, that's a big question right now. Is it similar to like the CME futures launching in 2017 where it's sell the, sell the news, buy the rumor? Mm. Yeah. You, you still got the, uh, the, the lawn mowing services near you, right? Yeah, they should be done soon. They should okay. be done soon. No, I'm just saying we can move on. Uh, it's just a couple Bitcoin charts. They're interesting. Uh, uh, check my YouTube channel for more on those. Uh, which one did I want to talk about? Here, I can show you this one really quick. This is the Scandix. So let's even take out Denmark. These are in their own currencies. Like they're all kind of similar, actually. It's in Kroner. They're all called Kroner. But here you see Sweden in blue, Norway in red. Sweden really from 2008 from the GFC really tried to get rid of cash and did. Uh, they were at you know, over a hundred thousand, hundred and ten, not hundred thousand, be a hundred, hundred and ten billion kroner, Swedish kroner in physical cash. By 2017, that was down in half, basically 56 billion. And Norway, more flat, let's say they didn't, you know, really have to cut it much, but they, they were at say 50 uh, billion kroner around the GFC. And now they're at 40 billion. But you can see in both cases, particularly with Sweden, like it's kind of reversing, floating back up, as we said. And that's, that's again, interesting. And Denmark never, they're pegged to the euro, so they never really did it anyway. This is kind of just doing what the euro does as well. So Denmark is still, is still growing. But the Scandics, you know, Norway, Sweden in particular, they're the ones that are really, really trying with this. You know, it, it's like at least get your physical cash. If you say you want to go into CBDC, see if you can actually get the physical cash out of circulation. And so far, we've seen no country that's been able to do that. Yeah. Well, when it comes to Sweden, I'd be interested to see if this chart is telling a story about their immigration policy over the last five mm. years. Like are a bunch of immigrants coming in, don't have bank accounts, and the demand for cash has simply gone up because you have a new labor force entering the market that doesn't have bank accounts and <laughs> needs to get paid. Yep. Very good point. As the Syrian crisis in particular was, you know, 2014 to 2016 there. Uh, and you can see from 2016 that uh, bottomed out their uh, attempt to get rid of cash. And now it's slightly up from there. So very good point. And all of these things, issues that are just not going to go away for countries that are trying to, trying to uh, control. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. 
No, I was, I mean, pull up like the national debt chart that you had up there. Cause I think that's important to touch on as well. Yeah. I mean, obviously we had the debt ceiling impasse earlier this year. The debt ceiling essentially got eliminated until 2025. Probably won't be reapproached till 2026 because we'll have a new president coming in. Then we'll have to pick his committees and it'll could take be, time for. It could be never reinstituted, man, for all we know. I mean, yeah. We could be in a whole new world by then. Uh, yeah. But go ahead. You have, you have that. I believe it was June or July. Uh, we added an, another trillion dollars worth of debt. Then you had the Treasury come out and say, hey, we're actually going to issue $1.85 trillion worth of bonds between now and the end of the year. So rough math there is about $4 trillion being added to the mm-hmm. debt uh, in the second yep. half of this year. Yep. Uh just a quick note, I I can put these in log, dear listener viewer. Some some people have requested that, but it's actually better, I think, to just, you know, this is a 250-year chart, so yes, log helps. But with the tooltip and with zooming, I think it's better to just look at it in linear. So that's what I'm going to stick with. But if we zoom into, you know, the last 30 years here, uh, and I talked about this actually recently on Peter Peter McCormick's show because I – you know, he was having a discussion about, okay, we, we're going to get more liberal, classical liberal-minded politicians in. Maybe it seems like something may break. And and he may be right on that. I mean, who knows? I, I'm still not, I'm still pretty disillusioned with politics, particularly U.S. politics, but as I know you are as well. Uh, but regardless of if they do, think about this. So here we got it, you know, in 1990, if you're listening, we had $3.6 trillion dollars. Three thousand six hundred billion, three point six trillion dollars in national debt. Now we have thirty, thirty-one point five. It's a bit. It's even higher than that. I think in June, whatever, thirty-one and a half trillion now. Okay, so up ten x in thirty years. My zoom is a little bit wrong. Sorry. Something like this, but think about the Clinton years. Okay, a big deal for Bill Clinton was balancing the budget, something he still talks about to this day, such a big deal, right? And he did that for a couple of years, three years, maybe it was mostly his second term, uh, going into the new millennia. That was here. <laughs> if you think about like how much this is talked about, how much this is like put on a pedestal as the best thing, the divided Congress, Newt Gingrich, all these people were working together and, uh, yeah, you know, sex scandals and he was a bad dude and, you know, maybe killed some people, bad things were happening. Uh, but, but they still had some good, you know, they had some good things with some, this divided Congress. And it was really, it was just a re- you know, really good, good thing for the country. That is just like a little crescending, like de- descending plateau there, just a little bit, like almost, okay, we're, 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 we're leveling off this increase in debt to about $5.6 trillion at the end of the millennia. And then, you know, up 27 trillion over the next literally what, three, four administrations, baby Bush, Obama, Trump and Biden. I mean, it's uh, all of them have increased the debt significantly 30 to 40% during their, uh, during their reign. And I, I just, I don't see what you do to that. Otherwise, unless there's major outside external factors. Um, 
you know, I, I don't, I just don't see how this stoppable. I don't see how a libertarian candidate, you know, he mentioned how Dave Smith coming in and might want to do something and, uh, or he's on Joe Rogan. And look, I, I, even as, as well-intentioned and well-spoken and principled as a lot of these people are that want to get into politics, I just don't, and I, I don't see it. I don't see, I don't want to sound too, you know, throw my hands up in there. It's never going to be done. But if you just look at this over the long term, you know, all countries look like this, by the way, you know, Argentina looks worse. Some countries look much worse. Some countries might look a little bit better, uh, but all countries look like this and something usually breaks, something usually breaks and they reset. Yeah. Like, I mean, let's steel man it. What, like extraordinary measures would somebody need to take to fix this? Just like a pure default. Well, I would, I, I would say if you want to steel man it, I would say default is not the option that they would take. Right. Cause we've been soft defaulting for <laughs> decades, right? We've been rolling over, uh, devaluing the currency, devaluing the dollar. And that's, that's the soft default. The hard default I would say is yeah, not the steel man argument, the steel man argument. That was what they say in debates. It's what they, it's what they talk about. You know, I, I saw an interesting tweet from Taleb, actually, as much as he's just proven to be a complete dolt on Bitcoin. Um, he was quoting some people in the Trump campaign uh, saying, like, this time, so, like, Trump is going to really clean the swamps, really going to do it, and, and, you know, all this lit bullet point list of things. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. He does this, like, CPAC. You probably know who he is, but. I'm not in U.S. politics too much anymore over here in Europe. But point is, Taleb called it. He was like, look, I mean, only a fool, only a sucker goes in twice for the same candidate expecting a different result. Uh, you know, how many times has this been done in any industry, politics, business? Uh, I know there are people that are really big fans of Trump and are very principled and and whatnot, but you you just cannot. It's it's a definition of insanity. If you're like Trump did not do that much during his first term, you can't blame it on. Oh, he was learning the system. He's kind of outside of politics. Uh, to expect if Trump wins, to expect that he's going to come in and like really clean house, drain the swamp, do everything you want him to do. Just look at this debt chart and tell me that he's going to flatline that and make it go down even, I, I say no way. This wall, this wall alone is going to explode the thing if he ever gets that done, which he won't. I mean, he's proven, I mean, this is just like the visible debt. We're not even talking about the 220 <laughs> trillion in unfunded liabilities. Social and Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are off balance sheet. It's another nice thing the United States like to do, which most countries don't do. And we, people have to remember in the context of Trump, like he oversaw the largest expansion of the monetary base ever. <laughs> like, and yeah. To think he wouldn't use those tools again when push came to shove is, like you said, insane. We didn't even mention that, did we? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. I'm, I don't know what you think about this election season. I mean, it seems scary to me, uh, but I, why do you say I, scary? Just because two old guys again going at it, and you know, their hands on the codes and all the rest. 
Uh, I mean, as we know, it's a pretty, you know, their hands are tied. Regardless, the system itself is completely institutionalized. Uh, I mean, I, I see some podcasts. I see people really trying to interview these people, hold their feet to the fire. Uh, I saw Trump on Tucker, like maybe trying to say like, okay, will you, what will you do about the agencies? Are you really going to clean house? Are you going to do this? And of course it's like not answers that he's given, but you know, that's the steel man argument is just their, their non-answer flowery comments that they're going to try to do and say during the debate. But when push comes to shove, when you're actually sitting there, I mean, it's just an institutionalized uh, thing and that control is not given up easily. Uh, it's certainly not given up from the inside. No. Yeah. I think it's an absolute shit show. I mean, just looking at the last chart you showed, like we're approaching the vertical point of the chart where it just goes straight up. It's going to happen at some point in the next couple of years. And obviously yeah. that's why we focus on Bitcoin, try to get people to the life rafts while all that happens. And hopefully can provide some sense of a soft landing, a softish landing, a relatively soft landing, a safety net, if you yeah. will. But it's going to be chaotic. I mean, again, those unfunded liabilities alone, like that's never getting paid back. No. This is an interesting one if we layer in the central bank holdings. So this is basically, it's essentially the monetary base. It's a little bit of a different number. I'm taking here the asset side. This is actual assets, uh, United States government bonds, securities on, on the Federal Reserve's books. So just a reminder, again, the way that they get money out into the system, they could buy anything, but they typically buy government bonds, right? So obviously, who's the husband, who's the wife, the central bank, the uh, the government, it's their, 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 it's a corely, uh, it's core related institutions. And yeah, the central bank's in charge of monetary policy, they get money out into the economy, but how they do that is they buy assets. They could buy anything. They could buy real estate. They could buy stocks like Japanese government and Swiss government, uh, central banks. But um, nonetheless, mostly it's it's uh, it's treasury securities. So it's a little bit higher than the monetary base. It's a couple trillion higher. It's because it's reverse repo facility on liability side. We don't need to talk about that now. But nonetheless, here's the number. You compare this with the national debt. You do a percentage term here. And uh, we can see that the peak was during Trump's term. Uh, I guess it was, but when did Trump leave? December, 2020. Is that right? Uh, so I guess it was the start of Biden's, but it was going up to it at the end of Trump's term. The peak was 28%. Again, on book <laughs> government liabilities of the United States, which are well under the uh, unfunded liability number that Marty keeps mentioning. 28%. Uh, and that's that's an all-time high. If we just zoom out, uh, in the 70s, stagflation, it went up. Vietnam was ending, went up to 17% the central bank owned. But the Fed, only being around for the last 100 years, never owned this much debt. And that is coming down, okay, since Jackson Hole of a couple of years ago. That is coming down. They are trying to normalize again. Same thing they were trying to do in 2019. Uh, but again, we... We saw in the monetary base, the the year on year looks like it's kind of dipping, like you just said. Doesn't look like that yet here. Uh, but how low they're going to get this? Like if they're going to get this w below this level in 2019 of 15%, I'd be very surprised. I'd be very surprised if, you know, it's, this is a matter of months, I think, as we're talking about, right? Six months, 12 months. I mean, you're really going to pull this 
this 23% uh, ownership of government paper down to 20 or 15%. I think it's just too much pain. It's too much pain to, to do otherwise. So this is the whale in the marketplace of the Federal Reserve, what they, they purchase of United States government bonds. Yeah, and I mean, just taking a caveman's view of this chart, like looking at any point in time where it's the the black line has dovetailed into the green shade, the light green shade, it seems to have <laughs> had to reverse. Um, I don't think there's any mathematics behind it. It's just that a is a, that's a good caveman view of it. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, it's I think it's just the visual <laughs> on the right axis. But that's a that's a good STF. Uh, view of it no i mean you're right you're absolutely right i mean look at that like it's it's trending up and uh that's a that's pretty funny actually i didn't think about it that way you could be right yeah it's a, ma- it's a matter of months man it's a matter of months and we already know that it's that that is going up this ceiling is suspended like that was a surprise like that was a secret it's this song and dance and we act like we don't know that it's going up every single session of Congress, you know, this has happened like 30 times. It's, uh, yeah. And this Republican Congress is trying to say they came away with a bunch of wins. It's like, no, you didn't. You suspended the ceiling for, for two years, likely three or more. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is a big one. This is a big one, I think. And, um, I don't see I don't see an easy way out of this one at all. No, I don't see libertarian, Democrat, Republican, any candidate that can change the trajectory of what this is. I mean, this represents like the the guts of the bad promises that governments have made. Because remember, the debt increases when they spend more than they take in in taxes in one calendar year. So this little happy time with Bill Clinton, his second term, it's just a little bit of a crescendo into happiness, and then and it just took off again. I mean, it's just. It's unstoppable. Yeah, and after the great financial crisis, it looks like the line's like flat. Like it's very much being manipulated pretty aggressively. Where if you go back to the longer view of the chart, it does look like there's at least some sense of markets trying to determine um, or the government letting the market try to determine things. Yeah, it's true. It does. It does fluctuate much more, doesn't it? Uh, Yeah. Maybe even going down some years, you know, some decades. It's very true, especially from the Vietnam peak. Uh, It fluctuates a lot more. You can see it in the black shaded line, whereas here it's just completely more straight. There's no, uh, you know, seasonality or changes there. And this little dip here, by the way, where if you're listening, which is probably hard for you at this point if you're listening to all these charts. But, uh, you know, we were at 8 9% central bank holdings of uh, government paper before the GFC and dipped down to like 5 This is where Ben Bernanke was trying to figure out what to do. So he basically swapped out government bonds uh, for commercial paper. And this was just all the facilities, that's massive. They figured out how to get that off the books after a year, but just massive corporate bailouts and everything took over the Fed's balance sheet and they had much less government paper during the GFC. Yeah. I mean, and then you add in 
with the current interest rate policy, I mean, just the interest expense on the debt that's expected to balloon to like $1.7 trillion a year once treasuries roll over over the next 12 months. And then we look over to Japan and they seem to have completely lost control of their yield curve, which they've successfully controlled for, for many decades, um, which begs the question, like obviously Japan is the prototype for quantitative quantitative easing as a policy. Uh, and it seems to be nearing its end game. And uh, I guess the question is like, do you view Japan and their inability to control their yield curve in recent months as a canary in the coal mine that this stuff is getting out of control. They can't keep the cat in the hat anymore. Well, one thing I always told you was we got to be humble. We got to be careful here with, uh, with where we think we're going with, you know, Bitcoin in this picture. And though Bitcoin is 500 billion, right? Which is a lot higher than it was, you know, five years ago. And when the monetary base was 20 trillion, now it's 27 trillion globally. And, uh, Bitcoin is 500 billion. Bitcoin's, you know, the eighth largest, uh, currency, if you call it that way, if you, if you, if you frame it this way, which it is, uh, outside money, you know, you have the, the four, including Japan, which you just mentioned the big four, then you have the pound sterling, you have the Swiss franc, the Indian rupee, and then you have Bitcoin and Bitcoin actually around 27,000, when you get up to 30,000, you're already bigger than India again. So we're at number eight, number 10, if you include gold and silver, but it's an amazing achievement for what Bitcoin has done. Nonetheless, I always caution, you know, imagine you were a gold bug, like right here in 1980. It's like chaos. Uh, Vietnam War was ending, a lot of chaos, stagflation. Gold, if you if I'd layered in the gold price here, it'd be going up to 850 bucks an ounce for two seconds on world markets, but everyone would be loving it. You would think that sound money was returning. You would think that we were, you know, that you had won. I say this all the time, and uh, I know I've said it on your show before, but that's that's the that's the only risk. And I, and I think the Bitcoin mitigates the risk. Like Bitcoin, it's 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 clear based on those power trend lines that we saw. It's clear that the trend is up. It may go tens of thousands of dollars under the trend line for for years, but it's clear that the trend is holding for now. Uh, I shouldn't even say for now. It's it's clear it's it's a clear trend that Bitcoin has, and we know the value proposition and all the rest. Whereas gold has a lot of antiquity baked into it, literally and figuratively, that just hasn't held its trend lines well at all. So there's a lot of good things that are happening for Bitcoin there, but we still have the lessons of the past. And in the modern era, in the modern era, you know, the United States government debt when gold was 850 bucks an ounce was, you know, $830 billion. You would think as a gold bug that that would be a signal that, okay, the markets don't trust <laughs> US government paper. They don't trust the dollar. Uh, it's time to return to sound money after 10 years of being off the gold standard. And you see what happened. You see what they did. So, I just have to say that to your canary in the coal mine comment because I totally empathize with it. I sympathize with it, but you know, Japan in particular, they have been impressive at kicking the can down the road and markets like normalcy 
even during the, you know, we had a ridiculous few years here, right? From 2020 to now. And everyone wanted to get back to normal. They wanted to get back to, you know, a little bit of lower interest rates, a little bit of, uh, of uh, predictability in the markets. And they're not getting that right now. So that's, 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 that's interesting. But I, you know, if, can they, can they extend this for another cycle of 10, 20 years, right? If, if, if everybody just, if everything goes to shit and they have to take interest rates from where they are now, which are pretty, you know, I don't have an interest rate chart for you next time, pretty high, right? Five, six, 7% people are suffering on their car payments, mortgage payments, or whatever might be adjustable or credit card payments, pretty high rates all around the world. Can they take those back to zero? Yes, they can. They can take those back to zero. Will it destroy the currency? Again, I think if you were a gold bug, you would have been loving life in 1980 and you would thought we were returning to it, but but we didn't. So I think Bitcoin protects you. I think Bitcoin is the steps that you need to take, but I just, I, I, I don't have an answer for what comes what comes next. Do you? No. I'm not going to pretend like I do um, <laughs> in the midst of all this that's going on, whether it be the banking crisis earlier this year, back to COVID stimulus, the expansion of the monetary base. I will say it does seem like it's getting to the point of insanity, like to such an extent where it's like, all right, it seems like something has to break, but I do also have to recognize that I'm in somewhat of a bubble and then a bit autistic about following this stuff and really immersed in it while most of the world probably is not. Um, and like you said, they've proven time and time again that they can kick the can down the road and then analoging to gold. I mean, there's a lot of, I think, pretty strong theories that the governments and banks uh, essentially work together to artificially manipulate and hold down the price of gold um, so that it didn't send oh, a yeah. signal to markets that they were losing control. Like to think that they wouldn't try to do that with Bitcoin as well is probably a bit naive. If, I mean, it's, it's proven. We, we got the London gold fixing scandal. I think yeah. another JP Morgan trader was just arrested for, for fixing gold prices. Um, so I think, oh, it, yeah? I think it's a theory. Yeah. I think it's been confirmed um to be a reality to some extent it's probably still going on to this day and to think that these governments that have so much control and so much power right now and really want to hold on to that will not employ those same tactics against bitcoin because the bitcoin price runs um that sends a signal to the market like hey more people are trusting this money that's completely separate from the state maybe you should adopt it too people start dropping their dollar bags for sats. Um, the government does not want that to happen. Um, so I could certainly see that playing out, but then other side of that coin pun intended is that, uh, I don't know. I think Bitcoin is just such a unique animal in terms of the fact that it's digital, it's globally distributed. It's very easy to acquire and to opt into. Like, does that create a condition where it's much harder to suppress that price, particularly if people are actually benefiting from the natural properties of the network that allow them to actually take control of it. Um, I think if enough people do that, it makes the government's job 
of controlling prices a bit harder. Um, but then they just throw more weight behind it. I don't know. I could see it going one or two ways. I could see Jack Dorsey's hyperinflation tweet being extremely prescient. We'll look back at that five years from now and be like, yeah, he was right. We could be in the middle of it right now. Um, and if we are, people are going to need alternatives. Bitcoin, obviously, we believe is the best. Um, it will benefit massively from that. But I guess the, the question, the unknown known is like how much more power, gunpowder, powder, gunpowder does the government have to sort of manufacture a facade of stability? And what if they actually start to reserve Bitcoin or buy Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, we do know. I mean, Oman came out last week, announced that they're investing $1.1 billion in uh, exahertz, which is a Bitcoin mining company. Obviously, we had the Kingdom of Bhutan come out unwillingly earlier this year due to the fact that they got swept up in the bankruptcy proceedings of Celsius and BlockFi. They basically had to come out and say, yeah, we've been mining Bitcoin since 2020, and yeah, we're going to double down. Uh, obviously, it's been public that Gazprom and BitRiver have a, have a deal together, and so Gazprom is a state-owned oil and gas company in Russia. So Russia's got some skin in the game to some extent. Obviously, historically, Venezuela, El Salvador are in the game. Seems like Argentina may Argentina have maybe. may have a president that's um, very open to Bitcoin. You could see proliferation of adoption down there. And I actually saw, I, forget, I think it might have been River, dropped um, a research paper highlighting that Argentina's actually got more Bitcoin adoption and usage than El Salvador does at this point without any legal tender laws or anything like that. So mm. it does seem uh, like... I'll check that out. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely see that as being the case. It's a huge country. Yeah, and it does seem like... So yeah, it's hard to tell. I guess it's just prepare for both outcomes. I mean, selfishly, um, for the stability of the world and to avoid a Mad Max scenario while also be able to stack more sats at lower prices. Like hopefully they can kick it down the road uh, a bit more. Um, but then the acceleration list to me is like it, the negative externalities of these can kicking policies build up and compound so much that maybe in the long run, it's probably better to just rip the bandaid off sooner rather than later and begin rebuilding. Yeah. I think, uh, in the short run, too, it would probably be good for, I mean, it has been good and will continue to be good for price when you have more of these announcements or leaks or whatever with governments, or government entities or government energy companies, mining uh, and stacking. Uh, but even if like the Federal Reserve said that we're going to, you know, or they secretly did it and then we have like, you know, a certain amount of Bitcoin, we want to add to the stability of the do dollar or something. That's where I think it starts to get a little bit dicey because then you're on the same circle that you were with gold we know that the bitcoin market is much more uh at least we believe that the bitcoin market is much more resilient globally due to its digital nature rather than physical nature than gold has been because you're absolutely right and i agree like the alan greenspan quote you know he said during the 90s central bank he said it you know gata quotes it all the time like central banks stand by ready to sell gold should the price rise <laughs> like they was absolutely 
price suppression scheme. They probably don't even have a lot of the gold that they say they do. They probably leased it out. So it's a whole thing. Uh, and that was, but interestingly, over the long term, you know, whether it's due to Bitcoin itself, outshining gold, literally, you know, pun intended as well. I, uh, I'm not sure, but gold, you know, gold is just still stuck there at 2000. Still got all these gold bugs for like, I just think it's the worst type of a boomer who's so excited that these BRICS countries are, are, are you know, announcing more gold stuff. And I, I just think that's the worst type of boomer. I mean, you know how I feel about Russia, but I mean, these are, you know, human rights abusing China. Like these countries are not model countries that you want to have your, you know, stake the stability of your, of your currency around. And just to think that that's going to be a beautiful thing for your asset. I just think it's it's way off. It's way off base. And I, I would feel the same way about Bitcoin, not in the same way that you are mentioning it, because still it's, you know, that they're just doing what they need to do. Nothing is, I mean, other than El Salvador, there's nothing like major legal tender, but those might come and, you know, we'll have Bitcoin people championing those, those things as well. But I, I go back to the speech I gave in Prague, you know, I talked about, um, how easy it was for the Nazis to just come in and take gold. And, you know, it's just one other way of you're talking about a nation's treasure. It's literally the first thing that the Nazis did. It's how they funded their war machine throughout the whole war because the Reichsmark was worthless in Western markets. And they traded, you know, illegally with Switzerland and everything, or, or not illegally, but uh, just in a very uh, shadow, shadow market way. But that was gold. It was gold that kept their war machine going. And, it was the first thing they did when they went into Czechoslovakia. It was the first thing that they did uh, when they went into uh, Austria. And it was the first thing that they tried to do when they went into Poland. And I, I told a story about the Polish gold, which I might have said a little bit on this show before. But it's an amazing story of how the Poles got the gold. Literally, it's, they got the gold out of the country as uh, in, in September of 1939 as they were being firebombed. Bitcoin is different, of course. You know the distributed nature of keys and how you would do this and hold this and all that stuff. But I still think it's kind of like micro strategy, right? Like it's, it's great that they're buying all this stuff, but you know, you don't want to pin the hopes of Bitcoin on micro strategy. And at the end of the day, they're just one central actor that can easily be seized. It would be the same way if, if Bitcoin was under the purview of the federal reserve. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a catch 22 as well. I, I haven't, quite thought through the end game of that, but I, I don't think it's a great thing if we rely on these governments that have just ruined, trashed all their other currencies, you know, manipulated the value of gold. Literally, you can say that. You can't say all markets are manipulated, but you can say that about with the gold market for sure. And uh, in fact, I think you and I would agree, like most markets are not manipulated. They're mostly free and always trying to get around stupid laws. But uh, if, if they try to do this stuff with Bitcoin, yeah, I think it's like short term, maybe good, but over the mid long term, uh, we just got to keep working more to keep it distributed and not having the same fate of, as gold because gold has had a terrible fate over the last hundred years. And if you're a boomer gold bug tweeting about BRICS countries accumulating gold, which they don't even have that much, but if you're, if that's what you're pinning the hopes on for your, you know, 401k or your investment portfolio. Uh, shame on you yeah you're fucked too well, let's talk about the BRICS so the, you had the BRICS plus meeting in South Africa last week this is leading up to COP 28 I believe I forget what number they're on for that 
UN climate event, but it seems like from what I can tell, these are like back to back events that, that the BRICS countries, BRICS plus, whatever we're calling them these days are, are going right. to attempt to use to essentially announce like a pivot, uh, on their strategy and how they interact in the international markets. Um, and obviously there's been many theories I've written about them in the past. And I think, um, at one point, um, I had more confidence in their ability to actually do something than I do right now. As I've thought through it, like, like you mentioned, you have a hodgepodge of different types of countries, democratic republics, uh, autocratic regimes, um, uh, sort of monarchies, if you will, to a certain extent that are coming together. And I think just purely from a logistics standpoint, like uh, to think that these countries would be able to coordinate and get along in the long run. I, I just think it's short-sighted. I don't see, I see it being a massive coordination problem. Number one, like who holds the gold? How does it settle? What else is in that basket of goods that they're, uh, trying to launch and again who custodies those assets who audits them like I, I just find it hard to believe that they're going to be able to create consolidated um, and cooperative regime that, that works in the long run I just think there's too many competing worldviews and it'll just turn into a dick measuring contest that erodes the confidence in anything they launch at the end of the day mm. yeah I mean, and, you know, China's probably going to be demanding to dictate most of that dick measuring at the beginning and always. And if they start to filter off or people start to not trust them, which is already happening, you know, what happens then? Uh, I, I, I think, you know, the whole idea of BRICS box or this BRICS gold uh, basket or whatever they might do. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything yet that's like coming out of this. And like you said, uh, I think it's rife with potential problems, but I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm championing, you know, the, the old ways of the West either, as, as I know that you're not like, it's just, we know that there's something better. We know that Bitcoin is like light years better, um, stateless, neutral. And I think that's just where probably I mean, I know that's where we're focusing our attention. So that's, that's usually what I just tell people, but yeah, I, I, I have no love for the boomer gold bugs that, that think this is a good thing. And like there, there is a lot of them. If you look, you'll see them on Twitter, just talking about this is, this is like going to be great. So much accumulation of gold and all this stuff. And none of the lessons would be learned from world war two. And, you know, Precisely 70% uh, of the gold left Europe and, and the world trying to get to the United States during World War II. So it was actually, you know, people talk about many different reasons that the gold standard ended. Really, you know, it ended because of autocratic dictators, like wanting to just walk in and take your gold because it's in a vault. Um, you know, autocratic communist regimes, are they going to be much better in the short term? Maybe, but in the midterm, you know, 
we're, we're looking pretty bad for, for dictators right now in many parts of the world. So I, I just don't see that as, as a viable thing. And yeah, I know on the other side, like, again, I'm not doing what about as many, there's a lot of people that are anti, uh, you know, everything about America and like what, what they did to Russia, freezing the Russian reserves. I'm not saying that the dollar system is better. I'm absolutely not saying that. Um, but what we saw was if, if the, if the gold standard, uh, and wasn't a cl- the classical gold standard already fell anyway by World War One, but if what was a remnants of what was happening with gold around the world, and you know FDR was manipulating the price of gold and devalued the price of gold uh, in the 30s, but as we went into World War Two, if you saw that literally 70% of the gold goes into America, and then you have, by my count. Less than 30 years, yeah, 27 years or something of, a, of an American-based gold standard, you see basically how gold handles the extremes, right? The worst of the worst is what happened in World War II. This, it doesn't get any worse than that. I mean, the, the murdering, the pillaging, I mean, obviously, the worst is the, they called it the Tsan gold. It was the gold that was ripped from, you know, Jews' teeth as they were walked into oblivion. I mean, there was a lot of that. Uh, but the... And I gave, I showed these charts in my presentation. You know, I'm not, I'm not moralizing each pile of gold, but the most swift, direct way that the Nazis stole was just walking into central banks that they around the world and around Europe and taking the gold to fund their war machine. So that's what they're going to continue to do. If you know that, that like if if push comes to shove or come into any hot wars, like that's what you'll see with more centralized gold standards. So that's the worst. That's the absolute worst that can happen. The best. Is apparently what happened when the gold flowed flowed into the U.S. It flowed all into the U.S. and we set up this Bretton Woods standard that lasted from, you know, forty five to seventy one. France said, "Hey, we want our gold," and Nixon said, "Wait, you're gonna have to wait a few months. We're gonna have to go yeah. find it." And then, yeah, it was one of the last things he did, and as president, Charles de Gaulle, he uh, he. He uh, in the late '60s, he just started to claim, and he became like the biggest gold bug ever. And the U.S. couldn't redeem, and had to suspend. And so, again, it's the same. You would have the same problems with Bitcoin, by the way. Like if if you were going to do this, you'd have the same. It's there's nothing magical about the standard. You'd still constrain yourself and all those things. But I just think it's funny the extremes that we've seen. Right? I mean, literally, the, it does not get any better than. Uh, that, excuse me, it does not get any. Uh, well, you could say it could get better than what the United States, the situation that we had in Bretton Woods, but let's say it was like the best kind of that we had at the time. And it certainly doesn't get any worse than the Nazis. So, you know, what do you think this like mixture of autocratic, communist, monarchical, monarchical, however you would say it, uh, monarch regimes, coming together for some new gold standard is going to be better. I mean, there's just, there's no way it has to be neutral. It has to be stateless and we're on the the, the path there. So that's where I think, uh, I just think it's, it's it doesn't get out of the gate basically. And, uh, I, I think it's a warning as well for Bitcoin. I think it's a warning. Like you, I don't know what you think about like micro strategy or something, but I just, I, I'm still not a, I'm not, I'm not a huge fanboy. I'm just seeing all these tweets of buying more Bitcoin. Okay, great, great for the price and stuff. But there's nothing there that 
that's adding to the decentralization of the network. It's no the uh, the headquarters being within walking distance of Langley is a bit unnerving. Um, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> my 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 podcast, as Alec talks about that, there in Tyson's Corner, Tyson Corner, I guess it's called. And it's like all of the agencies and lobbyists are there, like you said, walking yeah. distance. But I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying it's a psyop. I'm just saying, if again, we, we're not. We're not putting our. Shouldn't put your hopes on the world. Truly, potential new world money that's decentralized. That that's going to be like the next catalyst. Uh, no, and like I actually do have thoughts on this too. We can wrap on this subject, but I do think. It's whatever. Bitcoin's permissionless. MicroStrategy can stack as much as they want, whether or not they're a front for the government. Who knows? I don't think it's likely, but I think it's funny. I don't. Just, I don't either. Just I think it's I, I'm, same boat. To be clear, same boat. I don't think it's likely, yeah. but it is funny. Yeah. Um, but the hope is that, and I've been writing a lot about this and thinking a lot about this because we've implemented it into my business, and I can see it actually providing a clear path towards. What, let's just define as favorable adoption, adoption that leads to the optimal outcome of Bitcoin being as distributed and in as many hands as possible um, outside of governments. Mm. And that is the utility that the layered stack of Bitcoin provides individuals, particularly the Lightning Network. And Lightning Network obviously is not a panacea for scaling like it's it's limited it'll only be able to scale us to a certain extent and then we'll have to add other second layer solutions to interrupt with it um something like fediments but i do think that there is somewhat of a clearer scaling path in front of us right now via the lightning network and again things like fediments and other second layer solutions that will come to market and that hopefully within the next three to five years the user experience of actually spent sending and receiving Bitcoin over these networks is so far beyond the incumbent system and it enables so many use cases that are literally impossible in the incumbent system that people are almost forced to adopt it because they want the utility that these yeah. solutions provide that literally do not exist in the incumbent system. So to that point, like, you know, I'm pretty bullish on this, just haven't seen it up close and personal with podcasting 2.0, with what's going on in Noster, what, um, with something that we're working on at TFTC, with lightning monetization. Like, I do think we're getting closer to the point, uh, a tipping point, if you will, of um, people being able to implement lightning and create better user experiences and unique experiences, most importantly, that do not exist in the incumbent system that people um will be forced to adopt because they want the functionality that it provides um whether they're consuming content or sending payments around the world and i do think we've reached a point particularly at the lightning network where you have robust uh competition at the implementation layer we have things like ldk so you have development kits that are making very easy to to build uh lightning wallets and lightning experiences um, and then I think on the business side, you, you have companies beginning to better understand the nature of the Lightning Network and what makes sense and what doesn't to implement it into their stacks. And I think the emergence of AI, whether or not it's all hype, 90% hype, or all signal, 
is yet to be determined, but I do think uh, what's going on with L402 um, and essentially just using the Lightning Network to do paywalled API calls for the energy-intensive uh, AI industry is like sort of a natural fit. Like I, I do see a potential scenario um, where AI is signal, it is useful, and people do adopt it in mass, and then they're literally forced to adopt the Lightning Network and do these uh, paywalled API mm. uh, calls um, because it's the only way they can ensure that they're going to be capital, capitally infi- capital efficient um, uh, with their energy cost in, in mind. Um, so again, that's the hope. Uh, I'm, again, optimistic. I do think the things that I've seen developing in the space point towards that being um, a, a probability and that probability increasing over time. Um, I do see a path towards that. And again, favorable adoption that leads to an optimal outcome of significant distribution and more importantly, people getting Bitcoin uh, into their own hands uh, before quote-unquote hyper-Bitcoinization or the price runs too far away from them. I love that, man. Uh, Sergey Kotler would always say that from uh, BitRefill. You know, it's like we all love Bitcoin, obviously spend a lot of time studying it and understanding it. And, uh, you know, the people that go to conferences, they love Bitcoin. It's an easy sell to, you know, use the next best uh, lightning wallet or like you said, some API uh, wall even, you know, for your for your business uh, using lightning, which is going to be fantastic and it's going to be awesome. But there's an easy sell for for us. It's it's not an easy sell for the average person that just wants to buy something and wants to do something. So it has to be that easy for the people that don't love Bitcoin, that don't care about it, but they just want, they do want the utility. They need the utility, as you said. And uh, I, I agree, man. I think it's coming. I think it is coming soon. And that's that's just got to be the way, right? Like it's definitely circling it all back to the start of the conversation. It's definitely not going to be the way that Nigeria tried to do it or the way that India tried to do it with their good old CBPC uh, or CBDC yeah. implementations. Agreed. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, we got to go build it. We got to build the experiences, build the utility, show it to people, make it easy. Got to make it easier. It has gotten significantly easier. I think that trend will continue. Um, that's the goal. Like armchair pontificating about number go up does have its merits in terms of helping people understand the value prop of Bitcoin. But then there's also this network side of things that literally needs software engineers to build out in a layered fashion to bring the full utility of the network to more people. Um, and the more utility you have, uh, the thesis is the more adoption you'll get. Um, so that's right. I love it, man. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, I love you, Mr. Majinxious. Um, this is only Likewise, buddy. I want to never, uh, never a chore, never a chore. I want to apologize for the landscaping that was going on for a lot of this. <laughs> you know me, man. I can I can roll off on these charts, but uh, I hope it was just clear enough for the listener and they didn't give up on us too early. But uh, if you are listening still, uh, we got the Crypto Voices podcast and then Porkopolis Economics on YouTube and uh, Porkopolis.io as well for the, a lot of the economic stuff. Yeah, very high signal content. 
um, any parting thoughts you want to leave the freaks with? Not really. Uh, stack sets. Uh, be humble, as you guys like to say. And uh, I think, as you said, go build it. There's a lot of good optimism in your closing words, and I couldn't have said it better myself. So nicely done. Yeah. All right. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Thanks, buddy. <laughs>